welcome to the Winding Paths podcast. I'm Aaron Shapiro, a former big law attorney turned management consultant. And I'm Joseph Gristel, another former big law attorney now running Get Some Class, a startup that helps remote teams build culture through social fun. In this podcast, we'll explore what it takes to chart a nonlinear career path, something we're both in the midst of figuring out. In each episode, we'll sit down with other awesome lawyers who've left the law. We'll explore how they got to where they are, what motivated them, how they thought about career risk, and what advice they'd offer to others considering this jump. Join us and discover what it takes to forge your own winding path. Our guest today is Robert James. Robert is the Director of Strategic Initiatives at Carver State Bank and President of Carver Development. Robert shares some important reflections on his career from graduating Harvard Law School in 1995, practicing law as one of just a few black associates at a large law firm, to trying his hand at building a startup just before the dot-com crash in 2001. Along the way, he shares some great tips on navigating a career in law and outside of it. So let's dive in. Robert, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So with my limited knowledge, I understand that you graduated from Harvard Law School in 1995, and I believe you are now president of a bank. Help us bridge that. Yeah, yeah. So I'll go back and, and give you a little bit more background about myself. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, uh, oldest of three kids. Um, my mom and dad were both graduates of historically black colleges, and uh, my dad graduated from Morris Brown College in 19. 19- 68. My mom graduated from Spelman College in 1968. They met in Atlanta. Those schools are a part of what's called the Atlanta University Center. And uh, they got married right after they graduated from college. And my dad was a business major at Morris Brown. And he ended up uh, being one of the vanguards of African Americans uh, at uh, Harvard Business School. He was in the first class that accepted a large number of African Americans. What year is this, Robert, for context? So this is, 19, this is 1968. So immediately after graduating from college, he went to Cambridge and, with my mom and uh, enrolled in Harvard Business School. Uh, my mom also ended up getting a graduate degree from Harvard. She got her uh, master's in education while she was there. I was born in 1970. So shortly after He finished business school. My parents moved back to Georgia, back to Atlanta. And then my dad started working at a bank, a large bank in Atlanta, and ended up getting recruited to a small bank in Savannah, Georgia, called Carver State Bank. Carver is a black-owned bank, and they recruited him to become their CEO. So he was like 24, 25 years old when he became CEO of this little bank. And so I grew up in Savannah. I grew up in that context. And I never, ever, ever wanted to be a part of the bank. I never had a summer job at the bank. I never worked at the seller line. I didn't do any of that stuff. Robert, would it be, could I ask you why? You know, I think it's a couple of things. One, my dad didn't push that on me, which, you know, in hindsight, I think was good. He didn't discourage me from it, but he didn't push it either. And in hindsight, I think it was really good and, and, and kind of um, emotionally intelligent of him. Um, my, my siblings will probably laugh when I say, when I associate my father with a, emotional intelligence. But I think, I, think it's, I think it was actually good on his part not to do that. Um, you so played I the long I wanted, game. 
yeah, I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I was better at writing and research and, you know, very much like I think a lot of people who end up in law school. I didn't want to stay in Georgia for undergrad. I went to um, Howard University in Washington, but I was sure I wanted to be a lawyer. I was pretty sure I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I wanted to, to become a lawyer and then go into politics. That's, that, that's what I thought my path was going to be. I went to, to college, majored in political science. You know, there's a lot of, you know, great high paying jobs for political scientists out there coming out of undergrad. So, so I decided to go to law school and I went right out of undergrad to, to law school. You joked, right? There are a lot of good jobs for political science majors. And I, I studied philosophy, so I um, experienced a similar thing. Yeah. Did you think about that at all when you were studying political science? Was that like a concern or? No, it, it wasn't. No, it wasn't because I, I was pretty sure that I was going to go directly to graduate school. It was my senior year before it occurred to me that I might do something different. And I didn't consider that very much. Like I, I do remember thinking to myself, you know, it might be nice to not go straight to law school and to go and work on Capitol Hill or something while I'm, you know, in between. Yeah. Um, I, had, I had done a lot of Capitol Hill internships. I really took advantage of being in Washington. So, you know, I did internships on the Senate and the House side and I did you know, a lot of public public affairs type stuff, um, political type stuff, government related things. You know, I applied for the Harry S. Truman Scholarship and won it and got exposed to a lot of folks who were interested in public service and politics uh, from across the country. And so, you know, I had a pretty defined path in my mind. It just didn't occur to me that I could do something else. And again, I came from a family where everyone went straight to graduate school. You know, my parents did. So I didn't, I didn't really think about an option of not doing that. So I applied to law schools and I, and I was really fortunate, got into Harvard and, and that was it, you know, so I decided to go and I didn't have a, a, a better thought. I mean, I, you know, so, so then, so then I had to, I, you know, I borrowed a bunch of money to go to law school. Right. And once you get on on campus at Harvard, and this was, you know, just for context, this was 1995 when I graduated from Harvard Law. And at that time, you know, the economy was good. Jobs were plentiful. The big firms all recruited and pretty much everybody got a job at a big firm. I mean, it's very unusual if you didn't get a job at a big firm if you wanted one. Most of my classmates went to New York and D.C., I really wanted to come back to Georgia because uh, remember, again, I'm thinking I'm going to, you know, run for governor or something. Is that still is that still on the game board? You know, you never say never, but <laughs> but but I'm 50, I'm 50 plus years old, man. I'm trying to I'm trying to do I'm, I'm trying to make my impact in, in different ways. And so, you know, I went to a big law firm. Uh, but even even that choice, you know, I had I had my pick of the law firms in Atlanta. Pretty much every firm in Atlanta gave me an offer for like a summer clerkship or whatever. And I had I ended up finishing law school with three permanent offers in Atlanta. And I picked the firm to go to based on which firm I thought would help me further my desire to become 
involved in government or politics. So I kind of picked based on the where, where I thought that firm's stature was in terms of uh, its, yeah. its standing politically. There was a former governor of the state of Georgia who was one of the founders of the firm, and he was still there. You know, He would still show up to work every day. He was retired, but he'd still show up, and you could go in and meet with him and talk to him. And, and so that was, a, that was a part of my calculus. Was that something that you were open about with the firm? Like, did you go in saying, I'm really interested in politics. I'm looking forward to being here for a few years and then, you know, doing similar things to what some of the other partners have done. I think I was pretty open with them about that. I mean, you know, and, 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 you know, I look back on some of the, some of the things that I would do and say when I was, you know, in my twenties and, you know, I was pretty bold. I was a lot more bold when I was 22, 23 years old. You know, I remember my first summer clerking at this firm, I made an appointment to see the governor. They still called him the governor, even though he hadn't been governor for 30 years. Uh, made an appointment, went, sat in his office for an hour, you know, to get advice yeah. from him specifically about how to craft my career to, to transition from practicing law to government politics. The advice he gave me, which I thought was really good, and I think it's good advice for anybody who ends up wanting to get into politics. He said, he said, you know, you should make sure that you have, that you earn some money so that you don't have to be beholden to anyone when you are in elected office. And I thought that was a really good piece of advice. I ended up not doing politics or government, but, you know, I thought it was a good piece of advice for, for folks who, who are in that predicament, who, you know, maybe have an opportunity to do something um, at a big firm or in a big consulting firm or something where you can earn money and, you know, but still have their eye on public service. He, he thought it was, would, would be a good idea not to end up in a situation where you would owe people as a public servant. And I thought that was a good piece of advice. Sounds like some people, uh, contemporary uh, politicians might benefit from advice like that. <laughs> well, you know, there's that. And then there's the flip, the flip of it, which is you don't want to be in a situation where you're going and trying to buy political office. But that's a different, that's a different podcast, right? Right. So, so I stayed at this firm for five years. What was calling you, Robert, if I could pause you, what, what was calling you to government and politics? Um, it sounds like that calling is either diminished or you've decided it's unrealistic or something at this point. And I'm curious about that, too. But what, why, why were you uh, so interested? I, I, I was just always really interested in it. I, um, you know, I grew up in this household where banking was the, the main driver, but it was it was bigger than banking. It was more about community involvement and what kind of what kind of impact can you make in the community and so you know it's interesting I mean I, I, I certainly associated my dad as the, the president of this bank and and you know in Savannah Georgia he's the only black bank president you know he was very prominent in the community but he was also really involved in other aspects of the community as well so he was really involved in local politics and statewide politics and so you know, I remember a lot of that, like, you know, as a little kid going and sitting in his office while he was meeting with the mayor. And I thought that was a huge deal. You know, the mayor would come and ask him for advice. And I thought that was impressive. And, you know, people who were running for, 
for governor or people who were running for senator would come and, and seek his guidance and support. And he was really involved in making sure that the right people got elected to city council and county commission seats. And so I was around political stuff. And so, you know, I had a natural affinity for it. And so that's what I thought I wanted to do. But, you know, when I got to the firm, I decided to do corporate law instead of litigation because I decided I wasn't into the whole conflict thing. (laughs) And so I did general corporate law, but still with an with an eye towards government. So I joined a practice group called Government Business Transactions, and it worked on things like privatizations or, you know, deals where the city of Atlanta was doing new leases for the airport or just different things where it was kind of a corporate practice, but there was a spin on it that had to do with the local state government. You know, we helped to get financing for a new arena and I helped figure out how to, how to write the, the sales tax law you know, for raising money for that, just stuff like that. So, but, but, but I didn't, I didn't take to new, to, to the big firm life for a couple of reasons. The biggest one is that my personality doesn't lend itself to, to, it didn't lend itself to working for those people. And when I say that, what I mean is like, I thought it was frustrating that I couldn't build my own book of business in that environment. They didn't really encourage it for associates to build your own business, which is kind of counterintuitive because you th- you know that as a partner, you, they really want you to have your own business. But as an associate, they didn't really want that. I had an entrepreneurial bug that I wasn't really sh- I didn't really know until I got in that environment, because, again, this is my first real job. I mean, I had, you know, part time jobs and summer jobs, but my first real job where I had any real responsibility. So you don't know that much about yourself, I think, when you're in that environment. I love that. I love that statement. Um, It's a huge thing of what we're about. You don't know that much about yourself when you start off. And it's a learning opportunity when you're starting. And that's okay. And that's part of the journey. And it's a a crucial message. I just want to pull that point out for a second. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and I think think it's, it feels, it feels odd to be young, you're getting paid all this money. You're in this high-powered environment. If you're at a big in big law, you're in this high-powered environment, and you might be working on, you know, major litigation or or transactions worth you know millions of dollars. You are given some some real heady responsibility pretty early. Yet. The only job you had before that might the only real job might have been at Starbucks or delivering, you know, at the back 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 then, you know, delivering newspapers or whatever it was that I did that was a that was a job. But you don't know a lot about yourself. And then you get this responsibility, and I think you you're really learning as you go. And it feels weird to learn as you go when you're in this position where it feels like you've got this high degree of responsibility and this prestige. Um, it's a very kind of odd dynamic, I think. And then, you know, the other thing that, that was interesting about it was being a black man in that environment was another layer of challenge. Those environments, the big law firm environments are not friendly to people of color, people who are different than the traditional 
power structure in the firm. And when you look at, I mean, you just have to look at the pictures of the people who were in charge of these places. What year was that? And were there, were there any other black associates at the time or even senior associates or anyone that you sort of looked to? Yeah. So, so when I started at the firm in 1995, there was one black partner. I went to work in his practice group. A lot of the decision that I made to go to the firm was specifically to go work for him. Mm -hmm. When I entered the firm, there were, this was maybe 250, 300 lawyer firm. It had less than 10 black people in lawyer jobs. Now, I got heavily involved in the firm's recruiting and hiring. And by the time I left the firm, the firm had 30 black lawyers, I think. It was really interesting to see what happened. And and we, we hired a lot of people, new partners got made, new partners came in laterally. But then almost as quickly as that happened, over that five-year period, it dissipated. And, and most of those people left to go do other things. And so of the people that started with me at that firm or came when I was there, I think only one, only one of them is still left there, I think. Do you feel uh, things have improved uh, since then? And if yes, how so? I think it's probably improved but very minimally. So, so I'll give you a couple of examples of things that I experienced. So you guys are young. You know, I graduated from law school before the turn of the century, so it sounds like ancient history, but this is not really ancient history. So some of the things I experienced, like when I was um, a summer associate at this particular firm, I remember going to a summer associate gathering and out, an outing at this guy's lake house. And I remember getting there and, and asking where the other summer associates were. And the partner who was hosting the event said, well, they're out by the boats getting a tan, but you don't need to go out there to get a tan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then, then, I had, then I had another summer clerkship at a different firm. I didn't end up not going to this other firm where – in the middle of the day, I remember I was working on some summer associate memo. You know, everybody knows what that is. People who listen to that to, to your podcast, I'm sure know what that is. So I'm working on some summer associate memo and I go downstairs and this was like on a Wednesday or something. So I go down to the, to the, to the first floor cafeteria in the building to get lunch. And I noticed that, you know, nearly everybody in the summer program is standing around the lobby and they're wearing shorts and t-shirts and golf shirts and and, and there's several uh, associates from the firm with them. And I didn't really think anything of it. I spoke to folks. I said hello. And then I got my lunch and went back to my desk. I came to find out that these associates in the firm, senior associates, organized a golf outing. And they only invited the white men. Which, of course, was like, you know, 80% of the summer program. <laughs> so, wow. So needless to say, you know, the 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 23 year old Robert James, 22 or 23, I, I made a huge deal about that. I mean, these people were falling over themselves to apologize to me and the other black summer associates and the other women. And it was, it was crazy, but I, you know, and this is 1994. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, they, they should know better. Like a stone's throw from a stone's throw from, from the, from the Martin Luther King uh, center. I mean, literally, like you could walk to it from this particular office building. So, so this is, this is what, what I was dealing with. So it was, it was just not a friendly environment. Um, came to find out later that partner who I went to work for, you know, he found out that he was generating, you know, seven figures in business. He was generating a lot more in business than others that other partners that were getting paid a lot more money than him. Um, and so it's, it's stuff like that. And so I don't know how much, how, how much better it is. I think some firms have been more intentional about making it better. Um, but I think some, some haven't. And so, you know, you probably can see that from, you know, who's, who's there, who's working, who's in charge. And, and, and that's on top of the environment itself being, you know, it's, un, it's an unforgiving environment for a young associate, you know, billable hour pressure. And, you know, when you get senior, the, the, the pressure to, to start generating some business and, you know, how do you do that? It's pretty unforgiving. So I left. Where'd you go? So one of my other law school classmates came up with this business idea for a dot-com. And your listeners are going to think that's ancient history too. So, But this is in, right, this is, what year is it? This is probably the year, the year 2000. Like just before the dot-com just before, crash. Just before the dot-com crash. Perfect. I had great timing. So <laughs> he came up with this idea for a dot com probably in 1999. And I started doing a lot of work on the side for it. And then eventually I told my firm about it and I started doing a lot of work while I was on the firm's dime. And ulti- I ultimately decided to leave the firm and go and join this, this company. Um, it was supposed to be a business to business marketplace. Um, B2B was the big watchword in the dot-com space that by that time. And we were supposed to help minority and women-owned companies sell their goods and services to large corporations and local governments. It was a supplier diversity initiative, but within the dot-com space. And so I went and join this company. It was there were three of us to start with, and then I think we grew it up to maybe five people. We went through some different changes. We figured out that the business model. There were like twelve companies across the country that came up with the same uh, basic business idea. The only thing that I thought was successful about what we did was we figured out that it, that the model wasn't going to work probably before anybody else. <laughs> so, so well, you fail quickly, they say, you know. Yeah, so so we we pivoted and we started doing consulting for uh, municipal governments, uh, large corporations who had these programs, right, to to incorporate more uh, diverse suppliers into their supply chain, and that that business also ended up failing. It ended up failing because of probably more personality stuff amongst the, the leaders of it and who was being responsible and who wasn't. And then it did the fundamentals of the business. I mean, the fundamentals of the business were not right either. We, you know, we were a bunch of <laughs> one, you said, I had, let's see, you had me, I was political science. The other guy was a, a English lit major who also went to law school. Um, and then you had, 
uh, maybe another philosophy major. <laughs> so none of us, none of us knew what we were doing at all. <laughs> so our PNL was not was not being managed properly. I'll just put it that way. Can I can I just pause you there? I'm curious. You mentioned right. You go to law school. You take on a bunch of loans. Yep. And then you get this advice from someone along the way, you know, before you run for office, make some money, you got a large law firm, and then you veer off to something much riskier. And yes, I, I imagine at the time, there were a lot of people going and trying to start something in the sort of dot com era. Yep. But it sounds like you had a, you know, challenging go of it. How did you think about that? Were you worried about the risk of it or, you know, turning down the sort of golden handcuffs? Oh yeah, I mean it. It 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 was it was worrisome. I spent years recovering from it, but I but I had this risk taker in me, and so you know, and I had I think the desire to control my own time, control my own schedule, control my own destiny, and that and that I think is is personality, right? Some people can do it, some people can't. Um, I'm not saying that it's for everyone, but it was what I chose. It was what I chose. And, I, and I'm glad I chose it because it, it ended up help, kind of helping me get to where I am now. Uh, but that, that business didn't work. We broke up. I started another company, essentially doing the same kinds of things, but then I added real estate development to it. So I did a little bit of commercial real estate development. How did you know how to do that? I didn't. I didn't okay. know how to do that. Um, <laughs> okay. I didn't know how to do it at all. I, I ended up kind of pivoting back towards the bank. So, so in all of this time, I had, I had started to kind of touch the bank a little bit. Uh, when I was still an associate at the big law firm, my dad, who is still CEO of the bank and, and is still our CEO today. So he's been in the job, the same job for 50 years. Um, he asked me to join the board. One of his um, longtime friends and, and kind of solid board members had died unexpectedly, and he needed a safe vote on the board with its right resume and everything else. So he asked me to join the board of the bank. So, so I was starting to pay a little bit more attention to it during all of this time, right? And when I started doing the real estate development stuff and the other kind of consulting, so I was doing some of the same kind of consulting work that I was doing with the old company. And then I started doing this real estate development. So what I did was the bank needed a new branch location. So I, I figured out how to do it, but I think I was able to figure out how to do it because I had a, a, a customer that had the ability to pay for everything. Right. So I wasn't risking my own money. And so I did this branch location for the bank. And then a few years later, got a bigger opportunity to do a small um, shopping center that was anchored by a grocery store. And both of these things were important to me. And this is when I started to figure out what was really important to me, right? So go back to you know politics and government, and, and then you say, I wanted to do this kind of business that helped small and minority businesses you know, to succeed and, and grow. And then I did some more consulting in that space, but I also wanted to do uh, development, but I didn't want to just build shopping centers anywhere. I wanted to build them in the communities that didn't have them. And so we did this bank branch for this small black bank that really has a mission to serve 
underprivileged and, and underbanked communities. Then we did a a deal to bring a grocery store to a food desert, um, bring a major supermarket to a food desert, you know, it, and we did it on a piece of property that the bank owned and then sold to me. And then I had, I got the financing to, to redevelop this property and turn it into a supermarket um, and a bank branch. So then I thought I was going to be a real estate developer. I got lucky. This is the path to, to, to real, you know, wealth in America. And, and I'm going to be a real estate developer 11 months after. And, and I was like, okay, I'm going to be like the preferred black developer for this big grocery store chain significant in the Southeast. They're not the leading grocery store chain by any stretch, but they're significant in the Southeast. And I was like, you know, I don't need to be their overall number one developer. I just need to be the guy they call when they're ready to go into some black or brown community. Right. Well, I was all ready to do that. And 11 months after they opened this grocery store, they closed it. Now, they had signed a long-term lease. They signed a 25-year lease. So they still make their lease payments. So this was so 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 for time time-wise, this was 2011. So I worked on that development deal for like 2 years. Got the store open to much fanfare and the mayor and you know, all the muckety mucks in Savannah came and it was a big deal. And 11 months later, they shut it down because they didn't really know how to market to the black community that was around here, around the neighborhood. And that killed my opportunity to become a preferred developer for this grocery store company. The deal itself didn't ruin me. I mean, I, I, I was able to, I had some guidance from a, from a much more experienced guy who helped me make sure that I didn't put like my personal, whatever little personal financials I had, you know, weren't at risk and and that kind of stuff. So it actually turned out to be okay, other than the fact that I wasn't going to be able to, to do this development. And so then I started doing, I had started doing more work for the bank not just as a board member, but I had started doing more work for the bank and kind of getting more involved in what the mission of the bank was. And so, you know, I was doing things to help the bank to, you know, really maximize its mission and maximize how it, you know, acquires resources to do work in the community. Um, the bank is not only a minority depository, a minority-owned bank, which is a minority depository institution or MDI, but the bank is also a certified community development financial institution, which is a certification that's given out by the U.S. Treasury to financial institutions that have a specific mission to serve underserved communities. And our CDFI status is something that I managed. And I managed our, you know, accessing all these different programs from the CDFI fund of the U.S. Treasury to help us to get access to more resources to do things in the community. And so all of these different experiences led me to really figuring out how valuable having a, a, having a bank that's owned by black people that's focused on serving underserved markets and underserved communities is in terms of helping people really experience true citizenship in America, right? Our bank, Carver State Bank is one of only 19 black 
owned and control banks in the United States. And, and Robert, to give people context, if I remember correctly, I took regulation of financial institutions with, uh, I don't know if you know Meg Tayar and Howell Jackson. Howell Jackson is, is the financial institutions, uh, you know, law professor in HLS and Meg Tayar is a financial institutions partner at Davis Polk. Uh, they have a textbook they wrote together. If I remember correctly, the number of banks that they had mentioned to me, it mentioned in the class in the country was somewhere around 4,000, although there was a lot of consolidation occurring. Um, yeah, yeah. There's about 4,000. There's four. The last time I checked the numbers, there were 4,577 uh, federally insured banks. In the U.S. So, and 19, so you're like under 0.5%, right? That's correct. That's correct. And then, and then in terms of the assets of those banks, um, it's less than a tenth of 1% compared of, of the overall banking assets in the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's really, but the impact that those banks have, so if you're, if you're in a community, if you're if you're in a minority community and you have a minority bank, those communities are seventy seven percent more likely to be banked. You know to have bank accounts and be participating in the banking system. If, if you look at you know our bank, for example, our customer base, we did a survey of our customers a few years ago, and roughly thirty percent of them didn't have a bank account at all before they had an account with Carver. If you're in a in a minority community and you have access to a minority bank, you're much more likely to be able to get a decent mortgage, a small business loan. Those things really, really are critical to allowing people to have full participation in the U.S., you know, in the system. And so I went through all of those experiences in my career really to come back to where I came from and and to apply some of the lessons that I learned to this. And so, you know, now not only have I gotten more involved in the bank, but I'm, uh, as of last November, I'm CEO of our holding company. We have more than doubled our tier one capital, which is the basic equity capital of the bank. In the last year, we're looking to quadruple it this year. We acquired the charter for another black-owned bank over in Alabama. Uh, and we're really looking forward to kind of bringing our mission to that institution, uh, which, is, which was floundering and on the, on the verge of failure. Uh, we have really embraced our mission and and kind of restated it to make it simpler and easier for people to understand. But the mission is to provide the building blocks to financial freedom. And we've developed a strategic plan around that mission. Uh, We've identified what we call our four building blocks of financial freedom, build money, build homes, build communities, and build business. And everything we do is focused on those four building blocks. We are bringing new um, resources, new people, new technology to our bank and converting it from what has been a really stable, successful uh, institution for 95 years in our community. But it was very high touch and low tech. We've got to become high touch and high tech. 
and and so I'm really excited about leading that and taking all of these things that I went through and the experiences that I had and and kind of returning to my roots around public service, but doing it in a different way. I know question of uh, establishing more branches or pulling back in the face of the transition to digital and the internet-based um, banking, um, you know, is a major question. It sounds to me, am I hearing correctly that there's... Uh, in in your neck of the woods and your focus, the branches are still of critical importance and expanding those as a primary, you know, objective. Is that right? That's a really good question. I mean, we have to have a digital first approach to, to building the bank um, and expanding. But I do think that we have to be mindful that there's still a need for some physical presence, particularly when we enter uh, new communities, Right. Because we're going to grow outside of where we are, which is Savannah, Georgia. We're going to grow outside of Savannah. We're going to grow across the state. We're growing, you know, we acquired this other bank over in Birmingham. So we're going to be in different locations. There is still a need for that retail uh, presence. We have to be very strategic about how much we invest in that because of, you know, the inevitability of the digitization of banking. I mean, it's really already happened and it's going to continue. Um, but, but I do think that people need to be able to, to see you physically, um, particularly if, if, if you're in a community where you haven't always trusted the banking system. And, you know, we could have a whole other conversation about that, about why, you know, a lot of black and brown people are distrustful of the banking system. Um, there's a reason for, for it. And, and it's historic and it's unfortunate, but you know there's a there's something about the solidity of seeing a bank branch there. I'm not going to try to have a bank branch on every corner. I'm not going to be you know one of the big giant retail banks and have big bank branch locations everywhere. But I do think we'll have some you know more physical locations. So uh, I want to be mindful of time here. Uh, sure. And- uh, I think, you know, there's a ton we could unpack here for a while and dig into running a bank and what that's like and the like. I don't think we have time for that. But, um, you know, looking back in perspective, how do you feel about having gone to law school and, uh, you know, its role in getting you to where you are or lack thereof? And how's your perspective now on where you're at versus the original government uh, intention to pursue government? I'm happy I went to law school. I'm happy that I took the sort of circuitous path that I've taken to get to where I am. You know, and in my case, it kind of just brought me back home. It brought me closer to, to what, you know, kind of a legacy that I'm trying to uphold and, and, and build upon. I feel good about the impact that we can make at the bank, you know, and the impact that we can make nationally. I mean, in addition to the work I do at the bank, I'm chairman of the National Bankers Association, which is an advocacy group that advocates for minority banks across the country. So I, I've had a chance in the last two, two and a half years to testify before Congress three or four times and to, you know, really engage with policymakers and, and really try to move the needle um, for, you know, banks like ours. Um, and the communities that we serve, you know, more importantly. And so I think I'm in, I'm in the place where I was supposed to be. 
Uh, it took me a while to figure out what I was supposed to do, but you know, that's part of growing up, right? I'm still doing it. On my bio on LinkedIn, um, that I'm the kind of person uh, that hasn't figure out, figured out what I want to be when I grow up. But it's not a problem because I don't plan on growing up. So, uh, uh, on that note, uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so interesting uh, to hear about your journey. And um, there's lots more, I think, to dig into uh, and learn about. But this was really awesome uh, and a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you uh, for inviting me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us for the Hike Up Another Winding Path. If we got you thinking, share us with a friend or write a review to help others discover the show. If you have questions or suggestions for a future episode, share them with us at windingpathspod at gmail.com. That's windingpathspod at gmail.com. In the meantime, keep forging your own path.